Hello, my name is James McDermott. I'm a writer, teacher and 26-year-old cisgendered man. As a gay man, I love men, but as a gay man, I dislike men too. As a camp man who talks and writes about his feelings, I have always questioned stereotypical masculine ideals. As stereotypical men aren't camp, don't talk about their feelings and certainly don't create plays and poems about them. As a 26-year-old, I feel I've learned and unlearned lots about being a man, but at 26, still have lots to learn and unlearn about being my own kind of man. In this podcast series, I will talk with several people to explore masculinity, try and work out why we love and hate men, whether there are such things as masculine ideals, how creativity can help men explore and express themselves, and what men still have to learn and unlearn about being their own kind of man. This week, I'm joined by Paul Wheeler. Paul, hello. Hello, James. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Can I ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself and why you wanted to talk on here? Well, yeah, I'm I'm uh, 45 years old. I'm I'm involved in developing a positive masculinity project in Norwich, a new positive masculinity project, and I've been working around the area of positive masculinity, toxic masculinity for quite some time on my own I'm on my own personal journey. And it was really interesting to sort of be invited to to come and talk about my particular take on on positive masculinity. Before we start with the questions I usually ask uh, everyone that comes on, can I ask you to say a little bit about the work you do in Norwich? I had been working in the outdoor industry as a mountain leader and a climbing instructor and a canoeing instructor. And I decided to set up my own business um, using outdoor adventure as a therapeutic tool. So I did quite a lot of research into adventure therapy throughout the world. And the UK didn't seem to have a very big adventure therapy industry. Um, So we set this business up and we've been working towards developing adventure therapy practice over that time as well as doing other things and one of the things that I noticed in the outdoor industry was there was a lot of really good outdoor instructors like fantastic hard skills best climbing instructors best canoeing instructors really good at you know getting people to grab hold of them and very charismatic but there was also an element of almost a lack of sensitivity in terms of some of the work that they were doing and I work with quite a lot of marginalised, disadvantaged people. And what they're crying out for is softer skills. So um, good communication, a lot of positive reinforcement. And so throughout the practice of Ascend Adventure, that's the type of work we, we try to mirror. And there was also a, a much higher proportion of men who were involved in the projects that I was working and what I what I noticed as well, when men-only groups came along, there was a completely different atmosphere to when there was male and female groups. So I decided to start setting up and piloting men-only adventure therapy groups. Um, and I worked in partnership with an organisation called Men's Craft, and we got some funding through Handel's Banken to deliver a sort of pilot men's outdoor programme. Um, which we delivered last year 
and we called it the call to adventure and it was just one of the most amazing things that I've done for for a long time where we took these guys out of their comfort zone in a sense in a city living and and created sharing circles and we did some adventurous activity like bushcraft and walking and climbing and we really began began to see these men in a different way and they really began to open up about their lives um, and it's something that I've done in my life um, been on various programs um, being involved with the mankind project been involved on my own personal vision questing journeys and it's really helped me understand who I am and where I come from and I think these pilot programs I've been running has, has helped a lot of the guys we've been working with to to find to find themselves in a different way to to see themselves in a different in a different light in a different circumstance. That idea that your work through adventure has helped you find out who you are and where you come from. I feel very very similarly about writing and playwriting that it's all about exploring that human animal and um, how characters behave, why they do and. That notion of communication seems central to both our work as well. I think I've said in previous podcasts that playwriting is all about solving problems through conversation um, and about characters doing things. Drama means to do. So that feels really, really similar to your work as well in that sense of people doing things, people embarking on adventures, be they fictional ones in plays or literal adventures outdoors. Uh, So the first thing I want to ask you is about your relationship with masculinity when you were... Um, a child, say six years old, um, was adventuring and outdoor activity integral to your understanding of yourself and masculinity even then? Well, I we lived on the outskirts of Birmingham when I when I was young, um, and then we moved to a a small village in Worcestershire in the Vale of Eversham, and I was about five and a half when we moved into that house, and we had a really really big garden. And out the back of the garden were woods and there was fields and fields and fields for about two or three miles until you got to the next village. So the outdoors was really, really important for me. I can I can remember just spending a lot of time, you know, crawling through ditches and sitting in trees and helping my parents in the, in the garden, um, you know, with all the jobs that they did. They grew everything from asparagus to victoria plums and i just i had a very outdoory life from a very very early age we had wood burners and um i would help my dad to chop logs which i would say you you think of chopping logs as quite a manly thing and but my mum used to be involved it was a whole family affair we used to spend a lot of time getting the wood shed full uh for winter and that was at a very very early age and so it was that notion of masculinity and the, the strong man the woodcutter the the hunter gatherer was was quite massive in my identity growing up but I also at that age discovered that I was adopted and that um, I had been adopted at birth because my real mom and dad didn't love each other enough to stay together and my mom had been very ill during my childbirth and was persuaded by social services that it would be better off for me to to be adopted so I got given a book called Mr Fairweather and Family when I was about five and a half six years old which really really it confused me because it was almost like this little boy came into these 
parents' lives and made their life complete. So I felt a lot of pressure from an early age to be that sort of special child that makes someone's life complete. And I think that, given with this sort of outdoor life, meant that I did spend a lot of time in in um, in solitude. I spent a lot of time in the garden on my own, you know, playing with sticks and making bow and arrows and doing all those things that kids do. But I didn't really do it with other people i i went inside myself at quite an early age and 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 stayed there and my dad had some amazing skills he was he could fix anything build anything create anything but he wasn't very emotionally available he didn't really express himself emotionally and he didn't really give me the the tools to express myself emotionally and my mom picked up that role quite a lot um, and I think that created confusing confusion in me so I've got this strong man in my dad who's trying to give me all these practical um, skills and experiences but he didn't really give me the strong man connection that I now get from like mentors in my life um, so I felt I felt a bit lost I felt a bit lost as a as a small child and I sort of took that feeling of being lost into school and um, didn't really connect very well with other boys. Connected really well with other girls, but didn't connect very well with other boys. And um, and I still don't today, to tell the truth. <laughs> so it's definitely affected my development. Um, yeah, so masculinity identity that's one of the things that i that i find quite confusing in terms of what is it what are you meant to be as a man are you meant to be strong and able to fetch water chop logs build an orphanage um and also are you also meant to be able to cook a souffle and sew a pair of trousers and look after the children and be able to do all the things that my mom used to do. So I grew up with this mixed, this mixed role identity, and I and and I, I'm glad about that now because it it allows me to to do all the things I want to do, to be sensitive, to be strong, to make things, um, to be able to reflect. But it was um, it was definitely a, a a trial growing up, working out who I was. So that was you at six. And you said you had some understanding of uh, masculinity that you were supposed to be outdoorsy and um, inspired by how your father behaved with you. You necessarily weren't supposed to be emotionally demonstrative and that led you to become quite introspective. Um, How did your masculinity change when you hit, say, 16? When you became a teenager, were you in a similar place um, with your masculinity or had your relationship with it changed? I remember an incident that was in, in my house and I I was around the 15 16 years old age and my dad what used to happen for him he didn't used to talk about his feelings very much and he would have periods of time where he erupted um, emotionally so you get very angry he'd get very uh, aggressive um and I remember one day an incident happened where 
my mom got really, really upset and he was just being quite mean to her because I think he had all this pent up aggression and anger and feeling and didn't really hadn't really been taught by his dad how to his dad was a, a man's man. He worked in like Austin Rover and was a, a foreman and so he was a proper sort of union man, keep a stiff upper lip, um, but quite strong. Um, and I think my dad hadn't been really given the tools to deal with his emotions. And my mom became really upset this day, and and I couldn't I couldn't handle it. I really didn't like the way he was talking to her. And I was quite strong and fit. I was a, I was an athlete. I played a lot of tennis, athletics, football, um, a lot of lot cross country running. And I was getting strong, and I was quite muscular. And I I pushed my dad off off the sofa. I just pushed him onto the floor. Um, and I, I don't think my relationship with my dad and, and with my life from that moment on, I think it changed completely because he, he chased me through the house. It was like a scene out of Terminator. There's a scene where all the doors are closing and she's having to lock the doors and Terminator's coming out. It was like my dad was the Terminator trying to catch me. And I thought, hang on a minute, why am I running away from him? Why am I actually running? Why don't I just stop and stand up to him? Because I'm sick of his way of belittling my mom or talking to me like I'm I'm um, inferior and so I stood up to him and I told him that if he came anywhere near me I was I was going to take him out and uh, he uh, it makes me feel quite emotional because he sort of just turned away he I could see in his face that he was really scared and he wasn't expecting it and he he basically just got in his car and just drove off and our relationship became quite distant from from that moment on. I felt empowered by it. I felt like I'd stood up to this bully, but it it, it sort of destroyed our relationship at that time. And I didn't. He was he was sort of there for me in terms of giving me guidance around, you know, um, work and practical skills. But he'd gone. He disappeared. He'd like he he lost respect for me. He'd lost connection with me. He he was scared of me, and I sort of drifted away from the family home from from that point on. My parents always tried to keep bringing me back in, but in the end, I actually at the age of sixteen, when I finished my exams, I I had some older friends and we we decided to go and travel around Europe and there was loads of other things going on. I, I'd also got involved in sort of crime and um, I think because of the lack of guidance, I'd found my connection with older people and, and a lot of them were, were quite dodgy and dangerous and I got involved in all this crime and we decided to go to, to uh, well, I, I was, I was at age of 16, I was in Amsterdam, basically, um, which was quite a place to be at the age of 16, 17, with older people who do, you know, do things that older people do. So there was lots of, um, and I, I, I sort of started running at that point away from, away from normal life. I decided not to go back to college. I started college, but, um, just sort of left after a couple of months. My usual pattern was I would do really, really well initially and then I'd get bored with it and I'd just sabotage it and I'd end up leaving. So that's what happened with college. And then 
ending up in Amsterdam and taking psychedelic drugs and drinking heavily and um and I I really sort of got lost I got lost from the age of 16 onwards um really quite lost my parents didn't really know where I was I lived I lived with the new age travelers for a while um I used to make money out of committing various crimes I felt like I was above the law I was involved in the the traveler community and um got seriously involved in the the new age rave scene and went to Castle Morton Common which gave rise to the Criminal Justice Act in the in the year sort of I think it was 1991-92 maybe just before that so yeah from at the age of 16 I was I was crazy and I was wild um, and my in all that madness I I tried to join the army there was there was something going on in me that was this contradiction between this paradox between um, control and freedom, um, or sort of, and what happened was I could have gone into the army. They accepted me um, in, but the brigadier at the time phoned up my dad and said to my dad, "Look, we will take him in now, and he'll can, he can come in as a standard soldier, and he'll work his way up. But he's better off going off to do some more qualifications and coming back to go in as a non-commissioned officer." or even an officer and uh but my dad sort of was very much of the ilk where he had he's still called the doctor sir so when this brigadier phoned him up and just told him what was going to happen he just accepted it and I was really angry at my dad because I really wanted to get away but I'm sort of glad now that I didn't because I'm not sure I was in the right state of mind I think I was running away rather than trying to get a career it's quite emotional thinking about this stuff. They're, they're really quite poignant periods of my life, like the age of six and the age of 16. And I, and I, it's been a really great process to think about this podcast and think about what it was like for me. You said when you were talking about your father that uh, he didn't have the tools to handle emotions and you didn't have those tools either. Um Another reason I wanted to make this podcast at 26 is because it feels like such a transitional age where you are really becoming um, into your adult self. At 26, who were you? To And did you have, do you think then you had tools to handle your emotions? And to give me guidance now and to give listeners guidance, could you say a little bit about what you think those tools might be? Yeah, so 26, that was... That was the year 2000, the millennium, um, and I'd been, in all the, the mad places and things that I did, I ended up at, at university in, in 1995 as a mature student, so I was two or three years older than a lot of the, the students who were coming through university, and I don't know how I managed to graduate university in 1998. So I was sort of 24. But during the time I was in university, I became a father. My girlfriend at the time came to visit one weekend from university. And when I was at university and um, she decided she wasn't going to go home. 
um, she went to the family planning clinic to get some contraception and she basically came back four months pregnant. So that was quite miraculous, really. So I became a dad in 1996. I mean, you asked me about emotional understanding and, and whether I had any tools at that time. My, my relationship with my family had kind of gone. I still saw them, but we didn't have any real depth or connection. I'd had counsellors for quite a long time talking about my adoption and talking about things that were going on for me. So I had a little bit of insight. I knew what was right, but I still didn't have the capacity to do the right thing at the age of 26. So I got a small child who's who was four years old at that time, three and a half, four years old. I do remember spending the millennium with him. Um, but I had probably become, I don't know, maybe alcoholic by that by that time. Um, where I would binge drink and I would disappear for weeks on end. I, I think I spent about five hours a week at university because I only really had to do six hours a week because I was studying philosophy and the history of ideas. You could just spend the whole time justifying it by the fact that you were doing reading. And uh, so I, I had all these mixed up feelings. I was reading, I was philosophy, I had a child. I was meant to be stepping up to become a proper father but I, I couldn't do it. I knew what I was meant to do, but I couldn't do it. And I spent, I remember spending the summer just picking beetroot and um, smoking heroin, basically, when I was when I was that age, instead of instead of stepping up and providing all the things that my little boy needed. And I split it with my partner. And this is the crazy thing. I tried to go back and join the army at that period in my life. They'd said, come back when you've got some more qualifications. I had some more qualifications, went back, but it was it was almost five or six years too late because I'd had too many life experiences and been in trouble with the police. And and um, I was just trying to find some control again. And I, and I wasn't able to. They, I didn't get into the army. Luckily, I'm so glad that I didn't now. And then I just... I went I went missing for about a year and a half, two years. And you talked about um, drama and acting. And <clears throat> I got involved in criminality, which used, well, I, I, was, I was basically impersonating other people and committing forgery and deception and fraud. And it was the perfect thing for me at that time because I just com I got completely lost. Um, I didn't have to worry about who I was. I didn't have to take any responsibility. I didn't have to think about being a father. I just got lost in all these other identities, and it was it was tragic really because I, <clears throat> yeah, I, I ended up getting arrested, and it was it was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. Got arrested for committing these crimes and. Um, and I got sentenced to this long probation order. I was so lucky to escape going to prison. Um, I thought I was going to go to prison, but somehow my lawyer got me out and got me this probation order, and I got bailed to my mom's address. And and I really had to look at myself. I had to do these enhanced thinking courses. 
had to address my substance misuse. Um, there were so many things I had to do for probation. If I didn't do it, I was going to end up going to prison. And I and I did. And that that's when I started to get some real insight into myself. Just uh, just after that that period, so twenty six, twenty seven. I really started to understand that I couldn't carry on doing what I was doing. I had so much to live for and so much to offer and was given so many opportunities. It was about time I started to um, to knuckle down and do something about it. And, uh, and that's what I did at that age, 26, 27. My whole, my whole life changed. I, it had been a, a roller coaster ride. I'd affected everybody around me. I'd been like a Tasmanian devil through people's lives and then I remember looking in the mirror and someone I'd met, this um, this wise old Irish guy, actually, and um, he gave me a sticker. And, he, and the sticker said, you are looking at the problem. He said, Paul, you need to stick that on your mirror and you need to look at it every day. So I stuck this, I stuck this um, sticker on my mirror. And every day I could see myself looking back with this sticker saying, you are looking at the problem. And I realized at that point that no one else was going to do this stuff for me. Um, people had tried and tried and tried but no one could make me do anything if I didn't want to do it and it was almost like that realisation at that age at 26, 27 that I knew that I could do something about my life and I started to change direction completely it was a, it was almost like a, I, I changed overnight because I'd I'd went out on a, on a binge for a few days and I ended up overdosing on alcohol and heroin and I remember coming round and, and just not knowing where I'd been. And every time I sort of drank or used any drugs, that's where I'd end up, it, unconscious. And um, it scared me so much. And it was the first time ever that I got completely honest with my, my parents about what had been happening to me. And they they basically came and rescued me from where I was and looked after me and um, got me in touch with the services I needed to get in touch with to get some help around the things that I needed to get some help around. So that was now, that was that was like 19 years ago. And I, I didn't have grey hair then. I've got grey hair now. 19 years ago, my life completely changed and I've been following a different direction ever since, really. Thank you so much for your response. I think, uh, again, so many similarities which are chilling to hear that so many men deal with things in the same way, but also really comforting to hear that um, for me, and I'm sure for listeners as well, that I'm not alone in dysfunctional ways of dealing with things. And my goodness, do I empathise with using alcohol as a means of um, escaping yourself or kind of trying to escape into yourself in a dysfunctional way, trying to feel more comfortable in your own skin. Um, I had a big uh, relationship with that when I first left uni um, as well. So let's talk a little bit now about how your relationship with masculinity is now and um, how you've changed in those 19 years? Yeah, well, after I I sort of, I stopped drinking and I, I stopped taking drugs and I got loads of support and help because um, my dad had always said to me, because from the age of sort of 13, 14, 15, I used to get annihilated, just absolutely annihilated rather than just drinking socially. And he said, well, why don't you leave it alone? Why don't you just leave it alone? And I couldn't leave it alone, but when it got that bad, I did. And um, what it did, it just it left this gaping hole in my life. And I didn't really know what to do. I didn't know what to do with my life. I had this degree. I had, I still have my fitness. 
I don't know how I kept hold of my fitness, but it was one of the things that I always did was exercise, whatever state of being I was in. And um, I remember meeting someone who worked for a big Christian organization and and I took a gamble. I, I basically disclosed a lot of stuff to him about my life and he was quite a strong man. He, he was, he used to be a stockbroker in the city of London and he had basically become a director of this massive youth organization um, as a way of sort of paying back society. He was a good Christian chap and I got really, really honest with him and he said, Paul, why don't you come and do some work for us? And I was like, what? Come and do some work for you. If you've not just heard what I told you about who I am, he said, Paul, I think it would be a real asset. <clears throat> and I think what happened, we we're talking about mentoring and we we're talking about a lot of the role models that I had, my dad, people in our community, my family, the teachers at school, I never really felt heard by them. And I'd met this guy and he heard me for the first time. And there was also another guy who I'd met um, in a sort of self-help group. And he introduced me to a, a completely different way of life. He took me to a monastery and we were able to spend some time with these Franciscan monks and and talk about our feelings and talk about faith. And, and all this stuff was going on. So what happened is a really strong man ended up coming into my life and when I say strong men it was that they weren't just the alpha male they were in touch with their feelings they were sensitive they could cry they could talk openly about things that challenged them and they were really really nice guys they were they were being of service and they were giving of themselves to others and that that kind of it shone a light onto the sort of person that I would I would want to become and could become so I started working for this big organisation and he had real faith in me, this guy. He put me through some qualifications. He gave me a paid job, um, which helped me in turn to get some security and pay off some of my debts. And I started working alongside the rest of the team as a development worker, mentoring 16 to 24-year-olds who had become homeless due to life experiences and and it was a it was a brilliant time i spent a year and a half maybe two years working there getting to know about how to work properly and how to to do things legally and legitimately <laughs> paying off all my debts you know building a relationship with my son because my son lived nearby um and actually it was the first time in my life that i'd ever stayed anywhere for any longer than sort of a year or six months or whatever and I started to get to become part of the community <clears throat> and it was it was a it was a beautiful time and at that point as well they they gave me an opportunity to start becoming sort of a DOV leader taking people canoeing taking people out into the mountains becoming responsible for organizing these trips and organizing these groups um, and I, I I sort of mirrored to the young people, the sort of person that I wanted them to potentially become. Um, lots of things happened in my life. And, uh, you know, I ended up meeting a girl, getting married, moving away from Worcestershire, coming down to live in, in Norwich, 
and I've done lots and lots of training and lots of work on myself over the years. And it's all sort of culminated in, in where I am now. Thank you so much for talking um, with such length and candour and beauty about your experiences. Um, to respond firstly to your question about your curiosity, I think if you're curious, that doesn't mean you're gay, that means you're human. If you're a human animal, how can you not be interested in 8 billion different people as if you're only going to fancy a few? That importance of talking to other men and that strength, masculine strength, is in talking openly and crying Um just as the word love or man can have so many different meanings and connotations, definitions, the word strength can as well. I think it's really important to remember that uh, as listeners and um, when I was hearing you talk as well, the idea that strength feels like one of those words that only means one thing, like man to some extent, but it's multifarious in its meanings. Um, and that idea that the importance of talking to other men and strength in talking um, can enable you to feel heard. I thought that phrase really popped out and um, I think writing has always been my way of feeling heard and I didn't feel brave enough to put a face to the words I was saying. Before we part company, Paul, I have one more question for you. Um, as I said, I'm 26 now and part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast is to um, learn from learn from older adult men about their experiences of being 26 and uh, what might be the best path towards a positive masculinity um, as an adult man. So what advice do you have now um, for your 26-year-old self, if you had to pick one piece of advice, one little nugget of advice to give to your younger self, what would that be? I would, I would say that when I was 26, I was, I was running away from myself. And the thing is, when you run away from yourself... When you get to the destination, you're still there. So you can't run away from yourself. I've realized that. So what I would suggest to people at that age, if they're, if they're going through anything that, like I was going through, and like James, it sounds like you, you've been through as well, and it, it probably means that quite a lot of men have, have, have been through, a lot of humans have probably been through it, is to maybe... Maybe slow down a little bit. Maybe stop and and have a look around at, at what what's out there and what's available, and maybe try to begin a little bit of a reflection on the previous sort of twenty six years, because those those previous twenty six years have, have, have sort of told you who you are and what you can be, and what's okay and what's not okay. So maybe stop. Maybe stop running. Maybe have a look deep inside yourself and, and try and um, work out who you are. And don't be afraid to ask for help. I think it's so important to to find help wherever you find it. it it's okay if you find it in in religion, in the twelve step philosophy, in a, a community, and an alternative community in work in education in friendship in family just look around for those people who who whose life you really respect and think i'd like to be like that and ask them for help ask them how they got there um and who knows who knows where that might take you i know that um when i asked for help 
the beautiful thing is, is when you ask for help, you usually get it. It's beautiful advice. Thank you so much. And thank you for taking some time out to help me this afternoon in talking to me um, and allowing me to look at myself through hearing what you've said. So, Paul Wheeler, thank you so much. Thanks, James. Thank you for listening. This has been Mantor, the Masculinity Conversations, brought to you by me, James McDermott, and Story Machine Productions, with music by Jordan Mallory Skinner and produced by Sam Ruddock. We're keen to talk to anyone who wants to share their experience of masculinity. If you would like to be featured in a forthcoming episode, drop us a line at storymachineproductions at gmail.com.